Thank you. Um, we we um, uh, uh, have had uh, great crowds throughout this, this entire series. Sometimes when I, I do Bible study series like this, start out with a big crowd and then it kind of shrivels and it kind of shrivels and, you know, then the loyal six show up on the last, um, <laughs> the last night and we go out for pizza or something and, and have fun. But this has really been great. I really appreciated your, um, your seriousness. I've gotten a few emails and, and notes from people asking other questions and I really appreciate that too. Never, don't hesitate to send me a note. I, it might take me a while to get back to you, but I'm, I, I love getting all that because it, it really does help me know uh, what you're thinking about. So let me say that one, one more little thing. If you do have a note, a, a thought, or a question that's sort of been lingering since we started, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me a note, send me an email. Uh, what's my email address? gmiles at fcchurch.com. Um, I'm happy to get it. Like I said, it might take me a few days to get back to you, but I'm happy to get those notes and would love to look at them. All right, let's put this first slide up there. Um, Stuart, if you would, please. <clears throat> and I, I want this here as kind of a reminder of what, how we've been approaching the Bible and how we've been understanding it. I like this quote from Rob. So how would you define the Word of God? The creative action of God speaking in and through the world, bringing new creation and new life into being. Do, do you hear what he's saying? The Word of God is not contained in the Bible. This, this, is, this is not the containment for the Word of God. At the, on the first night, I think I said something like, you know, the Apostle Paul didn't sit down and say, today I will write some Bible. You know, wife, dear, bring me my Bible writing stylus. That, that did not happen. Um, what happened was people of faith over hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand or more, um, received letters or poetry or proverbs or stories or history, and they began to collect these documents, and sometimes they were collected into a single book, uh, several documents that were uh, melded into a single book. We talked about Isaiah maybe being uh, actually two or perhaps as many as three, I think two, but could some scholars argue as many as three different persons who contributed to the book of Isaiah, actually over a couple, 300 years perhaps. And then, and then as these documents began to uh, be gathered and read and studied and understood by various communities of faith in both the Jewish and then later the Christian communities, um, people said, we really ought to hold this in a place of honor and study it more carefully because there's something sacred and holy about that. <clears throat> and then uh, 300 years after the, after the resurrection, um, there was the council that gathered together, and, and I'm not going to get into all that tonight, but they then said, yeah, these books and these books, but not those, not those, and it's a fascinating study if you, if you like that sort of thing. But never at any point, well, never in, in, in my understanding has anything ever been said, this is the only word of God, this is it, period. Uh, Rob Bell's quotes are, are great. It's the creative action of God speaking in and through the world, bringing new creation and new life into being. I, I mean, I've heard a thousand times, if I've heard it once, people say to me, you know, when I go to the beach and I sit there as the sun is setting and the waves are coming in and the waves are going out and I, I, I just, it's like I'm hearing angels singing. Or people have said to me, oh, when I'm hiking in the mountains and my heart is pounding hard and I'm sweating and I'm climbing and I, I work all day and I climb all day and I get up to the top and there's this unbelievable vista, it's as though God took me there and put me in that place. Would you say God's not present in those moments? No, I, God, God is there. So there's a variety of ways that God speaks to and, and through the world. Um, there's a wonderful tagline that the United Church of Christ, which is one of our two denominational affiliations in our, our church, First Community, uh, has that says God is still speaking. 
I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the apostrophe. Have you seen that little thing? I love that. It's apostrophe, God is still speaking. Um, it didn't, God's, God didn't stop speaking here at, at all. Um, I've been in moments, I heard Peter Gomes. Any of you know who Peter Gomes is? He, he's in the resurrection now. He was the former chaplain at, um, at Harvard. He's a professor at Harvard, a full, full professor. An interesting combination of, of um, um, descriptions of him. African-American, gay, Republican, academic, ordained. I mean, how many people do you know fill out all five of those? <clears throat> Not very many. I heard him preach at a sermon in 2003. The sermon was 53 minutes long, and it wasn't long enough. I mean, that whole sermon, I just felt like I was in the presence of God. Not Peter, but just the way he was preaching and teaching and leading and, and the things he was talking about, the challenges he was putting in front of us. And the, it was just unbelievable. I, it was a sacred moment in my life. Was God speaking in that moment? I absolutely believe it. Now, if I'm writing the Bible, if I get to collect the Bible, I'm going to take Peter Gomes' sermon from 2003, and I'm going to put it in there. Um, and that's kind of how the Bible got put together. People said, do you remember that letter from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the church in Corinth? Do you remember that one where they were doing all that stuff where some guy was sleeping with his, with his father's ex-wife or new wife or stepmother or something? And oh my gosh, what a great letter it was. Um, by the way, we're going to get into that tonight. <clears throat> that letter, that, not the other stuff. Um, uh, you know, and they said, yeah, it's powerful. And remember that he gets down towards the end of the letter and he says, love is not patient. It's not, it's not, it, love is patient, kind. It's not arrogant, boastful, or rude. Love believes all things, hope all, hopes all things. Love never ends. And, 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 the, and the church said, yeah, we need to save that. And somebody wrote it down and made a copy of it. And pretty soon it got distributed around and 300 years later, they stuck it in the Bible. <clears throat> so there's experiences that you and I have had in our lives with the spoken word, with the written word, with stories or poetry. That's what the Bible is a reflection of, the same kind of thing. Um, my, my major professor at Claremont, um, he was the, the chair of my dissertation committee. He used to say in class all the time, the moment God stops speaking, creation will exist no more. I just, I, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, Julie and I talk about a pie conversation. You know, sometimes when you hear something like that, you think, oh, I need a piece of pie and a cup of coffee to think about that some more. You know, and have a, have a conversation across the table. If God ever stops speaking, creation will stop itself. So the idea is that the word of God is invested in all of creation. And it's all part of that. And we're going to look at that in, in, in the book of Revelation. Okay. Um, the first, uh, uh, let's go to the next slide. The first book on our, our, our um, schedule tonight as we go through Paul quite quickly, briefly make a stop at Peter, um, one of Peter's letters, and then look at um, uh, the book of Revelation. But God proves, here's from Romans 5.8. But God proves God's love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's a beautiful text. It's one of my favorites. It gets, a ru it gets ruined a little bit by the traditional view, which really isn't all that traditional, the traditional view of atonement theology. You know, have you seen that T-shirt where it's a cross and it's covered in blood and it says, his pain, my gain. Have you seen that kind of stuff? That's atonement theology that, that somehow uh, God, Jesus had to die in order for us to be saved. Um, I don't really think that's what Paul's getting at here. And, and by the way, that view uh, was not a view of the church for at least 1,100 years. Um, 
uh, at least 1,100 years, and it's only been in the last 150 to 200 that it was popularized by more um, uh, evangelical to fundamentalist type, type folks. When I, when I read this verse in seminary, it, it was one of those days where I just, I just almost fell out of my chair. Because even though I believe in the grace of God, even though as I talked last week about Luke 15 and, and all those, those uh, grace parables, remember the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, you know, and how grace is there, God forgives, God forgives, God forgives, God comes, not only does God forgive, God comes to find us uh, when, we're, when we're lost. <clears throat> it, somehow, it was, it, I'd never really understood this verse until sitting in, a, in the library at, at Emmanuel School of Religion in Johnson City, Tennessee, God proves God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still were sinners, Christ gave God Christ's life for us. It wasn't when I did the right thing or said the right thing or believed the right thing. It was in my less than perfect state that Christ came to love me and to love you and, and to love the world. I, I preached a sermon like this once at, at um, my church in Kansas City, and there was a, there was a member of the church who, who was about this tall. He was a World War II veteran, um, a, a good guy, had this really high-pitched voice, couldn't hear thunder, um, and so he always screamed, and, and, uh, and he screamed at me one Sunday and said, that's not true, that's not true. You have to ask for forgiveness before God will forgive you. That's what you're supposed to do. You must first ask forgiveness, and then, we'll, then God will, will, will forgive you. And I just, I, I had my big black, black um, Baptist preacher looking Bible, and I opened it up to Romans 5, and it says, in your Bible and mine, while we were yet sinners. Not when you fell on your knees, not when you said these okie-dokie words in a particular order, in a particular way that makes everybody feel better. No, while we were still there. <clears throat> it is, it is to, me, to my way of thinking, one of the most beautiful things you can find in, the, in, the, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And by the way, the letter to the Romans, um, that is, that's a, a, what I call oftentimes a hinge verse. <clears throat> in that it, the rest of the book, the rest of the letter, is, is really this, this kind of circular reason. He keeps kind of, he just keeps um, circling the plane, circling the plane around before he lands. It keeps going over the same coordinates, keeps going over the same coordinates. Um, my friend Rob Riggle, I don't know if you know Rob Riggle, he's a movie star, sort of a movie star. If you've seen a, a Will Ferrell movie, you've seen Rob Riggle, because he's in all the Will Ferrell movies. He used to be on um, Saturday Night Live. He's also a former Marine. Rob told me once that when he was doing a show for um, uh, uh, guys serving in Baghdad, because of the, the tight security around Baghdad and the air uh, space, the only way they could land the plane was to come in up high, real high, and then circle real tight all the way down in to make the landing. I mean, if you're a pilot or a, or a military person, I hope I described that right. Um, that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's coming in real high, with some real highfalutin theology, and he keeps circling around, circling around, circling around, circling around, and it's essentially that. While you were in your weakest state, your worst state, that's when, that's when Christ's love was given to you. That's when God's love was given to you. Not when you got to be okay over here, but it's in that moment. Um, then, the next slide. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. Do you, do you see that list? Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, anything else. Zip. Nothing. Nada. Can separate us from the love of God. I think I told this story in a sermon, so forgive me if, 
if you heard me tell it before, but it, it, it's, it's a story I tell often to remind myself of the point of the story. This was, it was 1988. I was doing a funeral for a man. Uh, I was a member of the church at, at Concord, uh, California, uh, where I was an associate minister. Dick Wang was the senior minister, but Dick had left and gone to San Diego and just left me behind there in, in Concord. I, I followed him six months later. That's another story. Um, so I was doing a lot of funerals that first six months after Dick left. And this man's name was Robert. He was gay. His parents uh, didn't want to talk about the fact that he was gay, didn't want that mentioned in the service, didn't want anything done about it. They told me that he had died of pneumonia. Technically, that was correct. But the pneumonia came due to complications of HIV AIDS. <clears throat> got to do the funeral. I uh, got to the church for the funeral. <clears throat> On this side, clearly all of Robert's friends, about 100, mostly males and, and probably mostly gay, most of them. On this side, all of Robert's parents' friends. His parents were in their um, late 60s, and just about everybody on that side looked like his parents on that side. Can you feel the tension already in the room? You can feel it. It's 1988. That's a long time ago compared to where we are today. Still some issues to be dealt with around that, that issue, but 1988, holy cow. Went through the whole service, did everything. I got to the end. And I, it was, I could still feel the tension. It was like walking down the middle of it. I was going to walk through this, this intense goo or something. You know, it just felt so thick. And I said, there is therefore nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither life, nor death, nor powers, nor principalities, nor the whole list. I went through it from memory. And then I said, nor sexuality. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And then I ran down the center aisle. <laughs> At the door, people were kind and gracious and all that, and I greeted people as they were walking out. And this man came up to me, a young man from this side of the room, 25 maybe, very thin, gaunt, didn't look well. I assumed he was sick. I sort of assumed, maybe falsely, but I assumed in the moment that he was probably gay. He grabbed my hand real tight and he pulled me in right to his face. And he said, do you believe that? I said, what are you talking about? Your benediction. But there's nothing that separates us from God's love? Yes, I do. And he pulled me in closer. Does this church believe it? And I said, yes, it does. And then he walked away. I tell that story a lot because there are still people in the world, not just gay folks, but folks, who for whatever reason aren't sure that God could love them because of X, Y, or Z. Uh, to me, that's, that's Paul's whole point in the book of Romans. You can turn to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans, and you can see a list of all these things that Paul talks about and say, well, wait a second, he's talking about same-sex behavior here. And yes, and keep in mind, most of the time, that's either A, temple prostitution, where women are being abused, or B, uh, pederasty, where young boys are being abused. It is not talking about homosexuality. But even that chapter one, when he lists all these different sins, all these different things, he gets to the very end and basically says, have I left anybody out here? I mean, he talks about every, uh, a lot, you know, thieving, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, doing, talking, gossiping, da, 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 all this list. And then he gets to the end and goes, all right, now we gotta deal with this because we're all in the same boat. And that's where we get to chapter eight. And it's so powerful and so direct and so clear. 
<clears throat> do you believe this? Does your church believe it? Um, I'm pretty sure my answer here continues to be yes on both counts. Uh, I, I do love, I, I, I stuck this in my notes at the last minute. My friend Bruce Bar, I put a couple of quotes on, on, um, on Facebook before the, the class tonight, and my friend Bruce Barkauer, who runs a stewardship ministry, teaches churches how to do stewardship campaigns and all, um, he wrote two words, Glenn, God wins. <laughs> I kind of like that. That's not a bad summary. <clears throat> all right, so that's, that's the book of Romans. Um, and again, these, the book of Romans is a letter. We're going to look at a couple of other excerpts from some of Paul's letters and one of Peter's letters. Keep in mind, these letters were written to particular churches mostly, or even a congregation, with particular issues and problems. The, the Roman church is probably, um, or the, the letter to the Romans is probably Paul's theological um, a masterpiece in that it, it deals with so much stuff. It is so dense and so thick. I taught a 12-week Bible study once on just the book of Romans, and it took us forever to, to get through the first four or five chapters in, in about 12, 11 weeks. I mean, we really never got through the whole book because there was just so much stuff to dive into. Um, but we're going to move on to uh, first, first Corinthians uh, chapter 13. I think you've probably seen this before. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul did not write these words for a wedding. <laughs> it's okay to read them at a wedding. I mean, it's not, it's not a bad thing. Have you seen the movie, The Wedding Crashers? Speaking of Will Ferrell, you know, he's sitting out there with, um, who's the other guy with Will Ferrell in that movie? Um, uh, who is it? Owen Wilson, thank you, yes. He and Owen Wilson have crashed a wedding and they're taking bets on what the readings are going to be. And he's like, 20 bucks, it's 1 Corinthians 13. No, it's going to be, it's going to be Colossians 3. And, you know, and then I think it's, it's Corinthians 13 and one of them loses his, his 20 bucks. Um, you can almost count on it. If you go to three weddings in a year, you're most likely going to hear that. But what's really going on in, in the church in Corinth? Well, if you, if you read 1 Corinthians, the whole letter, you'd see some of the particular issues in their particular congregation. Paul does some nice things at the very beginning, you know, the peace of God be with you, and this is wonderful, and you're wonderful, mostly, etc. And then chapter two, he just gets into it. Your church is divided. You're about to split. You're having a huge fight, a gigantic fight. Some of you follow Apollos, that's one of the preachers. Some of you follow me. What are you talking about here? This is nonsense, you're crazy. He gets into that. Another issue later on in that opening letter um, has to deal with sexual immorality, as I said at the very beginning of our, our class tonight. There's a, there's a son who is sleeping with his father's second wife. So it's his stepmother. You know, I, I said, I think on the first night of our, our gathering, um, that you'd have to give an R rating to many of the stories of the Bible if we put them out on, as movies. This is an R-rated section. And he deals with that. He's, and there's lots of other stuff going on. We don't know what the other stuff is going on, but if that's kind of an example, then that gives us a, quite a clue that they were, um, what's to say, freewheeling, I guess, uh, per, perhaps. Later on then, he says, some of you are coming for worship and some of you are coming to the Lord's Supper and some of you are going away full and leaving nothing for the other folks. Probably the commentators think what that's referencing is when they would gather for their worship on Sunday. And by the way, it was, it, it, worship in those days would, would be in a, most likely a house, usually somebody of means, like Lydia, perhaps you've heard of Lydia, a sell, seller of purple. It would probably have a house that would be 
oh, half the size of this. Most people's houses weren't that large, but it would have a large enough space in a courtyard perhaps where 40 or 50 people could easily gather. They'd hear from the word, there'd be a sermon given, they'd sing hymns together, prayers, etc. And at the end, they would gather for the Lord's Supper. It would be a celebratory meal, a full meal. It wouldn't be a little piece of bread and some wine. It would be a full meal. Well, what, what some scholars believe, and this is where I tend to believe, is that what was happening is because the wealthiest members of the church had no responsibilities, they could show up and be there the whole time. The slaves and workers who had other responsibilities and couldn't just leave whenever they wanted to were oftentimes coming late, and by the time they were there, all the food had already been eaten because the wealthiest who already have more than 90% of the people in the church are getting there and they're eating all the food and they're drinking all the booze and they're probably a little bit uh, hungover and stuffed and tired and the rest of the church shows up and there's nothing left. That was an issue in that church. So he deals with, he deals with all this stuff. He deals first of all with the church split that they're threatening to have. Then he deals with the sexual immorality. Then he deals with the obnoxiousness of those who have uh, not letting those who don't have uh, get any. And then he gets to 1 Corinthians 13. Do you see what he's doing? He's hammering them, hammering them, hammering them, hammering them, hammering them. And then he says, the only thing that matters in your church is love. There are many gifts in the church. Chapter 12 was there are many gifts in the church. Some teach, some preach, some, some uh, do this and that. And the other thing, whole list of gifts. The greatest gift, chapter 13. It's almost like he's a backwoods preacher who's just been leading up. And then he just, so when you hear 1 Corinthians 13 in, the, in a wedding, you might want to stand up and say, come on now, preach that word the way it's meant to be. Because I think he's saying to them, basically, listen, love never ends. Love is patient, love is kind. It's not arrogant, boastful, or rude. He just dealt with arrogant, boastful, or rude. Three of what he thinks are the biggest problems in that church. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love never ends. I mean, it's a beautiful sermon. There's a little bit more at the end because we preachers never know when to quit. But it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful sermon. All right, Galatians 3.28. Next slide. <clears throat> that is Galatians 3.28. Look up on the screen. You see that image? It's, it's just a perfect image of what Galatians 3.28 says. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. I mean, just, just look at that picture. We've got young and old. We've got people of color. We've got, we've got Caucasians. You can't even really identify some of the races of the different folks that are there. There are a couple that might be African-American. They might not be. They might be African. Um, I, I, I just love that image. Um, the, a, a church that looks like this would be a church that's really figured out how to practice Galatians 3.28. You know, Martin Luther King said 50 years ago, the most segregated hour in America is when? Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It's still true. And I've had conversations with my friends in the African-American churches, and we've had long discussions about, what, how, what do we do about this? There's a whole lot of style issues. <laughs> There's a whole lot of, um, frankly, safety issues. In other words, feeling like I'm in a group where I can be myself and be safe. Um, all kinds of things that we still haven't figured out how to deal with. <clears throat> but I, I, found, I found this looking around when I, I, I think all I did was Google was, was uh, image equal, uh, equality images. And, and several like this popped up and I think Michael's the one who, who finally chose uh, uh, this, this one to go with. Because it's a perfectly, 
uh, it's a perfect illustration of what Paul's talking about. So, so think about that. Think, think of how radical this idea was 2,000 years ago. It's still pretty radical today. Think about how radical it was 2,000 years ago. In Paul's day, a Roman citizen of means would not be in a religious setting with a slave. It would, you would be laughed at, looked down on. They would think you were crazy. What's wrong with brother so-and-so? Why is he hanging out? And when I say religious setting, I'm talking about Roman religious settings. They were very, very religious. They had lots of gods. Uh, and if you remember when Paul was in Athens, they even, had a, they even had an idol to the unknown God. So just in case they missed one, you know, they, they were very religious. Keep that in mind. When, when you hear the Apostle Paul talk about the pagans there, that's really not a fair thing for Paul to say because they really aren't pagan. They're very religious. There were some who were in the cult of, of, of uh, Zeus, others were in the cult of Saturn, others in the cult of Mars, all those different, uh, and I'm mixing up the Roman names with the Greek names, forgive me. Um, <clears throat> very, very, very religious. But the really rich people, the top 1%, they were in one group. The, the, the next group down, maybe the, the learned scribes and, and lawyers and senators and such, they'd be in another particular religious group. You go on down that to the workers, um, say like there might be a firefighter's guild, for example, and the firefighters would have a patron god, and part of their religious life was they would, they would worship this patron god who would give them safety and firefighting. You see how that goes? And then you go on down, then there would be all these other gods for all the other folks. You would never, ever move outside of your social strata. So your religious life, your political life, your financial life, your social life was strictly divided in these ways. Paul says, no. The, the God, the one God of all is a God who acts, actually sees no skin color, doesn't see male or female, any of those divisions. They're all faults in God's eyes. This is the way to, that, that was radical. That was unbelievable. No one thought about that. There's another place where Paul says in one of his letters, greet each other with a holy kiss. You would never have done that. A, this person up here who is a, one of the senators would be sitting next to a slave in worship and then they were to stand up and say, the peace of Christ be with you and give a hug and a kiss on the cheek. That would never, ever, ever happen anywhere else in Roman society. This radical idea still, still I think, still has merit and still hasn't yet been found practiced in very many places. It's a beautiful, beautiful image, uh, one that maybe we need to preach on and teach on and, and practice a, a ton uh, before we, we give it up. All right, now that's, so that's just a brief look at Galatians 3.28. Um, now, now let's go, oh, oh what, a couple things here, by the way, by the way, on that, on that issue there. Um, if, if let, me, let me find somebody whose face I can see in, in the light. Uh, Jody, um, if, if Jody comes to my church in, in Galatia, which was actually was probably a group of churches in Galatia, which is probably Western Turkey. She shows up at, 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 at Third Galatians Christian Church. And, and she comes in and she says, I, I've heard that you folks are, are, um, uh, will help people with medical issues. I've fallen and I think I've broken my leg. Could you help me? Do you know what the church did? They fixed her leg. They, they didn't ask her if she was a Christian. They didn't, they didn't try to convert her. They didn't say, now that you've done this, you know, would you like to consider Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Um, they didn't do that stuff. They didn't ask for any money. They just provided health care for everyone. Some folks would argue, and I tend to agree with this, that the first hospitals, community hospitals, were actually formed by Christians in the earliest uh, years of Christianity because they heard Jesus saying, 
you know, do this for the least of these. If Jody comes walking into our church and she's got a broken leg, it doesn't matter if she's a senator or a slave. She, in her woundedness, should be welcomed by Christ and healed and sent on her way. Now, if she wants to stay and have the Lord's Supper with us and enjoy us and participate and hear the readings and, and the poetry and the psalms and the hymns and all that, she's, of course, welcome. But do you see how radical that was? Again, in antiquity, you had to pay the piper or you didn't get, the, you didn't get fixed. And for most folks, that didn't happen. But the church said, no, we'll, we'll help anyone and everyone. <clears throat> it's it's a, a beautiful example of, of what could happen if we ever took this, finally, uh, completely seriously. All right, let's go to slide six, the next one there, Stuart. Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5 is a text that, um, uh, when I was growing up in the church, was used as the, the man is the head of the family. The man is the head of the wife. And therefore, in fact, I remember when I was in seventh grade that we were taught that no longer could Mrs. Schwartz, which wasn't a bad thing as far as I was concerned, um, teach us anymore because now that we were 12-year-old boys, we had to have a male teacher because at 12-year-old, you're now becoming technically an adult male and no woman can teach you or tell you what to do. Uh, As a 12-year-old male, I kind of liked that because I had a lot of women in my my life telling me what to do. Um, That's complete, utter nonsense, of course. Uh, But Ephesians 5 was used as a proof text. The man is the head of the family. Let me tell you why I got that verse up there and I'll give you a couple of of stories first. Um, When when we lived in Atlanta, I played in a 35 and over basketball league, um, uh, which is 35 and over means old, slow, can't jump or play anymore, Um, which was how I always played in high school, so it was okay. Everyone else caught up to me. But there's this guy that I played against, and he was about my height and about my age, and he was a pretty good player, and we kind of would go up and down the court, and, you know, we'd jostle a little bit, and every once in a while, you know, he would shove me and pull on my, pull on my uniform and hold me, and, and you know, he, he knew how to cheat the same way I did, and it was really irritating to play against him. And, and, and um, then one day, he was wearing a, I think it said Trinity Bible College T-shirt uh, before the game started. And so I walked up to him and went, I could tell by the way you play that you're a preacher. And, and he laughed and he said, don't tell anybody, how'd you know? And, and I said, because you push and shove and cheat, just like I do, I'm a preacher too. <laughs> and so we said, we gotta get together. And so we had lunch the next day and turns out he's in a very fundamentalist Baptist church where he was a pastor. And so, you know, I didn't want to, I, I actually did like him. We, we, whenever I played ball, I did push and shove and cheat a lot. But you know, you always shake hands afterwards and you know, say, hey, it was fun playing with you, et cetera. And so Terry and I had a, a really good relationship in that way, didn't know each other real well. So we just got to talking about some stuff and, and we had lunch and we'd most of the time, oh, we'd have lunch about once a month. We'd talk about church management and you know, how you deal with the deacons or the elders or the church board and how you deal with staff, just stuff, you know, preacher talk stuff. And then one day, after about six months, I said, Terry, I gotta ask you about that whole head of the household thing. You know, Ephesians 5, he goes, oh yeah, sure. Uh, you know where this is going? Do you know where this is going? I said, you know, how do you deal with that in your house? Are you the head of the household? Well, of course I'm the head of the household. We practice the Bible in my house. So how does that work? He goes, well, every major decision that comes up, I make it. Wow, really, what's that like? I don't know, there's never been one in 17 years. <laughs> A more, a more serious story. I had a couple uh, in, in the, still in Atlanta uh, who I was marrying. She was a member of our church. He was not. 
And we got into the premarital counseling. Uh, we do Prepare and Rich here, right, Jim? Same kind of thing. It's a Prepare and Rich program. It's a wonderful program. I'd just gotten trained in it, and so you go through all this stuff. And every, in, in, Anyhow, and they, they came in real low on one of the categories in this, this inventory that you fill out. And so I said, tell me more about this. It seems as though you're in conflict about how you're going to run your house, sort of who's going who's to make decisions, that sort of thing. What's going on there? And he said, well, I, I don't see why we're in conflict. You know, so I showed him the questions and how they answered. Oh, well, yeah, okay, we disagree there, but I'm the head of the house. I said, okay, really, great. Um, I looked at his wife, and what do you think? And she just looked down and didn't say anything. And then we got to having a conversation about that, and I talked about equality and sharing. I talked about Julie and me. Julie does all the cooking. I do a lot of the cleaning. You know, she deals with that. I, she deals with all the finances. I don't. Um, <laughs> All that kind of stuff. You know, I said, we, Julie and I, it's not about male-female roles. I mean, I, I run the vacuum cleaner. That's my, one of my jobs in the house. I clean the windows is one of my job, jobs, um, et cetera. You know, we try to share everything, and it's kind of evolved over years. But, but even like with our kids and discussing how we deal stuff, we talk to each other, and we might have an argument about it, but at the end of the day, it's a shared decision. No, no. I'm the head of the house. Ephesians 5 says it. That's my practice. I kind of got my dander up a little bit, you know? So I opened up my Bible, and I read through there. And you, can, and you can see stuff about the husband being the head of the household. And then I got to this verse, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ led, loved the church and gave himself up for her. He said, yeah, that's fine. I can do that. I said, no, no, you can't. You're not doing it. And let me tell you why. Because Philippians, I'll make sure I got that right. Philippians 2, 7 says... That Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. If you're going to love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church, then you need to listen to Philippians 2.7, which I think is still in your Bible. And it's really clear that Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a doulos, which is the Greek word not for servant, better is slave. You are therefore commanded by Ephesians 5 to be the slave to your wife. Do we have any questions? <laughs> He was not happy with me, but I, I wanted him to see that, that we can take the Bible and misuse it for our own good so often if we don't take it seriously and pay attention to all of it. Because Ephesians 5 is, again, actually, it's not about who's in charge. It's about serving each other. Husbands, serve your wives as Christ served the church. Wives, serve your husbands. It's not about, it's not about an order of command. It's about a willingness of both within the family to serve each other and to serve the family's needs. It's really actually a, a beautiful, powerful, amazing text that invites us into a, into a um, in, in those days and to a certain degree, even today, uh, in, into a new way of living and, and being together. <clears throat> that's, Ephesians, that's Ephesians 5. Slide 7, next one. Did Jesus go to hell? And does he still go? Go to the next slide. Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. This is from 1 Peter 3.19. Prison, especially in, in Greek thought, was a, was a euphemism for hell. That's where you went after you died. Um, Hades is the Greek word for, for the place of the dead. It's not a place of punishment. Sometimes the, the word prison was used. In antiquity, we're going to see in a minute uh, uh, a quote from the book of Revelation. Oftentimes in antiquity, the sea and the bottom of the sea was understood to be hell. 
That's why there's a lot of fear around um, uh, uh, sailing and, 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 and such, because if you fell over and you died, the belief was you were, you were falling down to the bottom of, of, of hell itself. Um, a lot of that kind of imagery. The thing here in this text is the spirits in prison. Uh, spirits isn't the best translation either. Really, a better one would be souls. Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits, uh, to the souls, it's the word in Greek, suke, in prison. The idea is, and again, here's this kind of this crazy stuff, is that on, on uh, anybody do the Apostles' Creed? Anybody grew up in a church that, was, that said the Apostles' Creed? Uh, born of the Virgin Mary, died, died crucified, etc., raised. Uh, I mean, before, before, after crucified, he descended into? That's the text. That, that's the text. Um, I, I quoted Robert Capon, I think, last week. Robert Farrar Capon last week. I heard Capon once talking about this, and he said, so does that mean if you happen to be in hell on the second day after the, resurrect, or after the crucifixion, well, thank God for you, then you got to hear Jesus as he came to preach. But if you're there on the third day and beyond, well, the hell with you. <laughs> Is that what that means? Sorry, that's a bad joke, sorry. Is that what that means? Capon says no. Capon says that the cross which he saw as the ultimate act of grace, stands both in time and above time. That you can't, you can't, you can't just locate the cross and the action of God's uh, forgiveness and love given to the world in one moment in time, that it actually stands above time. Now, I'm seeing some quizzical looks, and, and trust me, I appreciate it, because I'm not sure how I understand that. Except I heard Tony Campolo, great Baptist preacher, tell a story once. A woman in his church called him up, or, or some woman he knew, he's, he's a sociologist, he's also a Baptist preacher, called him up and said, Pastor Tony, um, uh, I've got a question. He's saying, it's three o'clock in the morning, you know, could you call me later? Well, I, I really wanna know about what's your belief on time? How does time work? And specifically wondering about the resurrection. Is, 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 it, is it that there are already people there now in heaven waiting for us? Or will it be that as each of us dies, we'll find ourselves living in some sort of new dimension and new way of being? And, and how will time work and all that? He said, yeah, you're actually kind of onto my way of thinking. The way I think it, what happens is that our death will usher us into a new state of being, usher into a new sense of time. Um, and that time itself is not governed in the way we've learned how to, to describe it. And he said, I'm really curious, it's 3.30 in the morning now, why have you called me? And she said, my son just died, he was gay, and at the funeral his pastor said he's not going to go to heaven. First of all, even if you believe that, why are you saying that at the funeral? But she said to Tony, what I wanna know is, will I have a chance to stand next to my boy? And Tony said, I believe that, it, that in God's sense of time, you absolutely will. I think that's what Peter is, is getting at here. That this, and that's what Capon especially is getting at. This idea that the crucifixion stands forever in time. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it. I think it makes this point. Do you remember when in John 20, Thomas with the other disciples is saying, I, I'm sorry if you guys saw him, whatever. I'm not going to believe him until what? I want to touch those wounds. And when Jesus comes to him, he extends his hands and he sees the wounds, Thomas does. He falls on his knees, my Lord and my God, because the wounds are with Jesus through eternity. 
it's not like abracadabra, okie dokie, everything's fine. It's all gone away. Um, you know, there's a part of me, uh, there's, there's one text in the Bible that says we'll be given, you know, new bodies and new spirits and we, you know, all, all this stuff. I, it's kind of hooky spooky stuff to me. Um, I remember my dad used to preach all the time. My dad, my dad had an issue with weight and, and at some times in his life he weighed as much as um, 400 pounds. Um, and he was just like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be 6'2 and 195 and just ripped. Um, uh, okay. Uh, as long as they don't have Twinkies, that'll work, dad. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's not kind, but my dad would laugh if I said that. Um, there's a part of me that wants my wounds to show up in heaven. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a basal cell taken off my neck the other day, well, a couple months ago, you know, and, and uh, I had one taken off my face about 10 years ago, um, and I remember whining and complaining about it because the scar didn't go away. It was really ugly for a while. I had this ugly scar. It's still kind of there. Um, but I remember this older member of my church, he said, oh, gosh, I'm up to about 12 of those things now. And he said, I just think of them as the tracks of life. They're just proof that you've been alive. I've always liked that, and there's a part of me that kind of want to take those signs into heaven to go and say, you know, Lord, here's my wounds from you know, going to the beach too much and not wearing sunscreen, but here's some other wounds. And maybe for you, your wound will be a broken heart. Maybe it will be some of the aspect, some grief or something that you've carried, and thank God that in eternity, those wounds won't be ignored or pretended like they never happened, but they'll actually be brought with you. And, and there in the eternity, however it'll happen, they'll, they'll be healed. Um, I think that's what's going on here in, in, in 1 Peter uh, 3.19 with that idea that, that, that God, um, that Jesus descends into hell every time, every day, as much as possible to bring all of us home. And don't forget Matthew 16, 18, which I think we looked at early on, uh, or, or last week, um, or maybe I preached a sermon on, I get confused a little bit. Matthew 16, 18 is where Peter makes his great confession that, that you know, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you, and even the gates of Hades will not stand against it, which is an implication that they're going to tear down the gates of Hades and go down into hell and rescue everybody who's there in the first place. Um, again, a beautiful, beautiful image. All right. Um, oh, good. We got some time left for Revelation. Next slide. What's the book of Revelation about? <clears throat> Revelation is a letter to be read as a message to other people in the first century, a letter that they understood. Okay? That's from the People's New Testament Commentary, which, by the way, if you want a book recommendation, if you want to do some really good uh, biblical study without having to buy a whole lot of books, the People's um, uh, New Testament Commentary is the best one-volume commentary on the New Testament you'll find anywhere. It's written by Eugene Boring um, and Fred Craddock, who I quote all the time. Fred's, Fred's in the resurrection now, but a, but a brilliant, brilliant scholar. Um, <clears throat> I love their summary. It's a letter to be read as a message to other people in the first century, a letter that they understood. If you're ever in a conversation with somebody and they say, well, you know, the book of Revelation says this is going to happen and that's going to happen in the beast and the tribulation and the rapture and all that. No, uh-uh. It's a letter written to a collection of churches, seven of them, 2,000 years ago that they understood when they read it. It's that simple. It really is. Go, go to the next slide. In the 2,000 years since the letter was written, there have been four ways of interpreting it. Number one was idealist. 
Timeless, in other words, it's just timeless images of the victory of good over evil. In other words, Darth Vader will lose, okay? You can see this, this theology reflected in many, especially American movies. You know, here's evil, here's good. It doesn't look very good. It's going to be bad. Don't worry. Darth Vader's eventually going to get it at, at, at the end of the movie, which he doesn't at the end of the first Star Wars, as I recall. But that's another conversation for another time. Uh, evil is going to be defeated. Good is going to win. So it's sort of a generic um, understanding. Second one, continuous historical. The predictions in Revelation are seen in current history. Can you think of some persons who have been identified as the Antichrist by folks, some Christian folks? Just shout them out. Can you think of some folks? Hitler. Ayatollah. Hussein. Lenin. I mean, every year there's somebody, there's, it doesn't matter who the president is, somebody says, oh, this is the Antichrist. Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, Carter. You just kind of go all the way back to every, you know, regardless which side of your politics, somebody's always saying, oh, that's sort of, he must be the Antichrist. You see the idea? That's, that's what this continuous historical is. Um, um, uh, <clears throat> go to the next one. Number two and number three kind of bleed in together. John is predicting the very last years of history. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, I read a book called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Anybody, anybody read that? Some, some of you did. Oh, good. Um, uh, he was predicting, hey, I've read Revelation. I've read a couple things in Ezekiel and Daniel and the Old Testament, and it's all lining up. The end of history is coming. It's all here. And here's Gog and Magog are actually the United States and Russia, and they're going to have a, a nuclear war, and it's going to center in Armageddon and Israel, and all this stuff's going to happen. But it's okay because all the good Christians are going to be sucked up in a rapture, and they're going to get to miss all this, and you better get your life right with Jesus so that you get to go in the rapture and not get in the end of the world. I was like 72, 73. This Christian satire magazine that I used to subscribe to called The Wittenberg Door. Jim, did you ever see The Wittenberg Door? Um, that means Jim's as radical as me. Um, about 15 years after that book, uh, Left Behind, came out, uh, they had a cartoon in it of, of um, uh, the author uh, driving his, his uh, really nice car, smiling, saying, guess I was wrong. Um, <laughs> Julie and I, in, in college, would have been 79, right after we got married, went to hear Chuck Smith, who, who I respect as a pastor, um, but he, he subscribed to the, the number two and number three view here, the futurist view, and he told us in 1979, same thing. I've lined it all up, I've figured it all out. By 1983, Jesus will have returned. We've really got so much work to do to help the world be saved so that we're ready for Jesus. You know, um, it, hadn't, it hasn't happened. <clears throat> the fourth view, post-historical. Revelation was written with a message for its own time, not the long-range future. I mean, think, for example, what good does it do a Christian who is suffering under, most likely, when this is written, the hands of Nero? And you know the stories about Nero. Now, no, no, they, may be, they may be apocryphal, but the stories are that, that he would sometimes take Christians, cover them in tar, and light them on fire as torches for his outdoor parties. I mean, Nero was just a scoundrel, a horrible person. What good would it do those Christians being persecuted to read a book that says, you know, someday in the year, oh, 1979, maybe 2017, there's going to be this big battle between these countries you've never heard of, and, and it's all going to blow up the world, but it's okay because all the good Christians will be taken out of that war. What good does that do those people who, who watch their friends burnt by this evil, crazy, wild man? 
it does zero good. The book of Revelation, I, I, as you can tell, I, I, I subscribe to the, to the fourth one. Um, Stuart, can you go back to one slide before? I probably just asked an impossible question. I, I hope I didn't. Tell you what, just leave it there. Just leave it there. Because what, what I'll do is I'll talk about it. the first one was idealist. The second one was continuous historical. Um, some, some folks combine number one with number four. That general idea um, uh, that, that the idealist and the post-historical uh, kind of compare. And some folks combine number two and number three. Um, what I think is important to notice is, is that, that um, <clears throat> it's a letter written to churches who would have understood, understood what was going on. Let me give you some background on this. You've heard the number 666, correct? <clears throat> that number comes up, I think, in Revelation 13. What's it about? Anybody know? Say it loud. Mark of the beast, right. Um, the number 666 symbolizes evil. The number seven in, in Judaism was the number of perfection. The number six means you hadn't done enough. Three sixes in a row means you are, you are evil. It's a way of, three sevens would be perfection, three sixes means evil. I won't get into all the discussion about why that's so. Just understand that's the way it was, was viewed. Um, because of some of the references in the book of Revelation, the scholars who have subscribed to post-historical most of them believe that it's probably being written about Nero and that he's the beast. He's the evil one. He's the terrible person doing all this. Now, it's written in code language. It's written in these strange uh, um, dreamlike uh, images and visions, and it's all weird and stuff, and there's, there's attacks of this and attacks of that. Um, but it, it seems as though, at least the scholars that I read that I, that I, that I study the most, and I agree with them, is that the person being described ultimately is Nero and that the government that's being described is Rome. Anytime you see the word Babylon in the book of Revelation, what John is writing about is Rome. Uh, why, why, why is that? Um, Babylon destroyed the temple in 587 B.C. Rome destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. That's one. There's a couple other things. Uh, Revelation 7, 9 talks about the seven mountains and where Babylon will come from, etc. Rome is often called the city of seven hills. Can you start to see some of, the, some of the comparisons? He's writing to folks who would have understood all of that instantly. If I stood here and began to lecture on how uh, Luke Skywalker is like Jesus and Darth Vader is like the devil and Princess Leia is like the Virgin Mary, all that's weird, by the way, but... <laughs> If I said all that, you'd know kind of what I was talking about, right? Anybody who doesn't know who Princess Leia and Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are, chances are pretty good 2,000 years from now people won't know that. They'll have no idea or no memory or maybe a little sliver of it. And they'll find one of my sermons and they'll go, oh, he was talking about these people that were in something back then called a movie. And, you know, then, then there'll be long, boring uh, scholarly articles written about all, all, that, all that stuff. But when I use it in context, you absolutely understand what I'm talking about. The if, if I were to talk about the Cleveland Browns and the Cincinnati Bengals, um, it would just be a sad conversation. Sorry, sorry. If I were to talk about the Ohio State Buckeyes, who are now ranked five or four, what did I see? Six. six. Thank you. Yes. Of course you all would know. <laughs> of course you would know. Yes. Six. But you know what I'm talking about, right? 
I mean, if I, if I talked about Jim Harbaugh as the Antichrist, no one would disagree, most likely. <laughs> uh, yeah, who? Yeah, good. Uh, so you see what I'm saying? But 2,000 years from now, those references will be almost meaningless. I hate to say it like that, but almost meaningless 2,000 years from now. This letter was written to a particular group of churches, seven of them, with some particular issues in their churches. Some, and they also had, by the way, some issues in their churches. Not just about being persecuted and mistreated and how bad things are, but also John wanted them to pay attention to some, some serious problems. Uh, each of the seven churches gets, gets a little bit of, bit of advice. Each church he writes and says, um, to y'all here, this is great, you're doing well, uh, you've been a blessing in this way, but you've forgotten. Put the next slide up, Stuart. Um, Revelation 2.4. Uh-oh, we're stuck. Revelation 2.4 says while he's looking for it, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had first. You see, you see what he's saying to that church? You've abandoned the love. Oops, that's the wrong one. Go, go back before that one. <clears throat> it would be slide 11 in the, in the, in the show there. Hey, there it is. Stay there. Okay. Revelation 2.4. Uh, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Note the connection with 1 Corinthians 13. This is an issue for the early church. This is an issue for churches in 2017. When we forget the love that brings us together, we got issues to deal with. Each of the seven churches that he writes to, he names. You're good at this. You're not so good at this. You've forgotten about grace. You've abandoned the love that formed you, etc. So every one of the churches, he's calling them to task to pay attention to the stuff that's going on, even though these persecutions and things are happening. And then he gets into the rest of the book, and the rest of the book really deals with how you, how you deal with this persecution. It's a, it's a book of hope. It's a book of, 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 um, of, of ultimately, of, of, as my friend Bruce Barkauer would say, uh, God wins. Um, uh, four years ago, I think it was, Julie and I led a trip to Greece in the footsteps of Paul. Um, flew to Athens, spent the day in Athens, went to Corinth, spent a day in Corinth, um, drove back to our hotel in Athens. The next morning we got up and got on a boat and went to Ephesus. Anybody been to Ephesus, by the way? Oh my gosh, it's, it was one of the highlights of my life to, to, to visit that place. Um, there's a place in the, in the theater at Ephesus where according to um, uh, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, Paul wanted to go there and preach and his friend said, you're going to get killed. Get out of there. Um, but I, I kind of stood down there on the floor and, and thought, what would it be like to have been Paul with, you know, 10,000 people gathered in this theater. I went up all the way up to the top. In fact, there was, a, there was a fence that said you couldn't go, but I climbed over the fence. Went over the very, very top row. I could hear the conversations down. Uh, on, the, on the floor of that, of that theater like we were talking just face to face like this. It was just, it was just an unbelievable experience but to imagine what it would have been like for Paul to be there. You know, there's a lot of places in, in, on these trips like in the Holy Land and in Greece where they say, oh, here is where this miracle took place and we just know because we have this stick from the miracle and, you know, everyone uh, make a donation for the stick. <clears throat> And you kind of go, maybe not. But there in Ephesus, this is like, this is Ephesus. These this roads is, are 2,000 years old. They're built 100 years before Paul got there. And the chances are he would have stood right in that spot. And there was a, several places like that in, on the Greece trip. Um, um, let me get my, myself back, back, on, back on target. Then after Ephesus, we went to the island of Patmos, which is where tradition says that John wrote the book of Revelation. 
And, and it, it was kind of disappointing to me. I mean, we got off our group on the boat, and, you know, there's thousands of people on this boat, and we all line up, and we go through, and, and they just run you through, run you through, run you through. Here's a little rock that he would have used as a pillow, which that doesn't make sense to me. And here's, here's the little enclave where he would have written down the book, book of Revelation. And I kind of had a shrug, you know. I was like, eh, whatever. A member of our group was walking out, and she's crying. Do you remember that, Julie? She's crying. And I went up to her and said, are you, are you okay? And she said, I, you know, I, I read the book of Revelation getting ready for this trip, and it's just kind of overwhelming to me how beautiful that book is and how precious it is and how this might have been the spot. And she, she, she looked at me and said, I know, you probably don't think it's real, and this is just all made up, but this is just so precious to me. In that moment, she taught me a lesson. She really understood ultimately what the, what the book of Revelation was, was, was trying, um, trying to do. All right, to conclude, next slide, which you've already seen. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember, remember, the sea is a place of bad stuff. That's where if you fall into the sea and the storm comes, you go down to the the pit, you're, you're down in the prison, you're down in hell. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, don't go yet. Um, that's not what the voice said, but don't, don't, don't move ahead. You seen the movie Titanic? Do you remember the scene where it's up in the air and it's about to go straight down and there's a priest hanging on? Do you remember that scene? This is what he's quoting. And he's, and he's got the great emotion in his voice, and he said, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That, that movie, other people got goosebumps over the little love thing. I got goosebumps at that point in the story. It's like, oh, the Bible made it into a movie. This is so cool. <laughs> and it was perfect for that point in the movie. He was giving them in their hour of tragedy and death a word of hope. That's the book of Revelation, a word of hope. In your, in your worst moment. Go to the next slide. I heard the lamb saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples and God himself will be with them. Keep going, I think. He will wipe every tear, yeah, from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And then the final slide. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I'm making all things new. In Greek, all things, do you know what it means? It means all things. The ultimate promise of the Bible is that in the end of ends, everything will be renewed. My little cat, Willie Mays, who was poisoned when I was 10 years old. I don't know if you remember the story, but my sister dug him up (laughs) three days after he died. He did not get resurrected. (laughs) John promises that Willie Mays, my little cat, will be made new. Do you have a dog that you loved, who unconditionally loved you? By the way, do you know that joke? How you can tell if your dog loves you more than your wife? Lock them both in the trunk of your car. An hour later, when you unlock the trunk, which one's happy to see you? It's a terrible, it's a terrible joke. It's a terrible joke. That little dog 
that little dog that has loved you, that gave his heart, her heart to you and, and loved you even when you were a crank, that dog will be made new. The water that's been polluted and destroyed in various parts around the world will be made new. The rocks, the trees, the streams, the animals, the platypuses, the, all of it. And you and me will be made new. The final word, as my friend Bruce says, is God wins. That's the promise. Thank you, everybody. It's been a great time. This has been a wonderful experience. Um, <clears throat> you will... You'll get an email from me. You'll get an email from me next week after we uh, uh, add up all these and we'll let you know uh, what won. And I hope to see you um, Sunday in church. We're open at 8.30, uh, 9.15, 30, and 11 for worship. God's blessings. Amen. Good night. Go, y'all. Oh, we can have a prayer. Yeah, stand up for prayer. Let's have a prayer. Let's have a prayer, please. Gracious God, we, we are grateful for the way you continue to speak to us through the rumbling stream, through the quietness of a cool October evening, through the comforting words of a friend, through a dog who loves us no matter what. God, we're grateful that your word speaks to us in so many ways. Give us the courage we need to let that word be made real within us, within our hearts, soul, and minds, so that we can become a vessel for you and your grace. Amen. Amen. Good night.